0: Section 3 of The Art of Music, Volume 2 Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2 Classicism and Romanticism by the National Society of Music. The Regeneration of the Opera, Part 3. 6. The wish of Gluck's heart was to carry to completion the reforms he had initiated, but Germany had practically declared against them. His musical and literary adversaries at the Viennese court, Hasser and Metastasio, had formed a strong opposition. Baron Grimm spoke of Gluck's reforms as the work of a barbarian. Agricola, Kernbecker, and Forkel were opposed to them. In Prussia, Frederick the Great had a few arias from Elsest and Orfeo sung in concert and decided that the composer, quote, had no song and understood nothing of the grand opera's style, unquote, an opinion which, of course, prevented the performance of his operas in Berlin. In view of all this, it is not surprising that he should turn to what was then the center of intellectual life, that he should seize the opportunity to secure recognition for his art, in the great home of the drama, in Paris. Let us recall for a moment Gluck's connection with the French opéra bouffon. Favard had complimented him in a letter to the Vienna opera director Durazzo for the excellence of his French déclamation. Evidently, Gluck and his friend Leblanc du Roulet, attaché of the French embassy, had kept track of the guerre des bouffons and had taken advantage of the psychology of the moment for Rameau had died in 1764, and the consequent weakening of the National Party had resulted in the victory of the Buffonists. Du Roulet suggested to Gluck and Kalsabiki that they collaborate upon a French subject for an opera, and chose Racine's Iphigenie. The opera was completed, and the text translated by Du Roulet, who now wrote a very diplomatic letter to the authorities of the Académie Royale, the Paris Opera, It recounted how the Chevalier Gluck, celebrated throughout Europe, admired the French style of composition, preferred it, indeed, to the Italian, how he regarded the French language as eminently suited to musical treatment, and that he had just finished a new work in French on a tragedy of the immortal Racine, which exhausted all the powers of art, simple, natural song, enchanting melody, recitative equal to the French, dance pieces of the most alluring freshness. Here was everything to delight a Frenchman's heart. Besides, his opera had been a great financial success in Bologna, and so valiant a defender of the French tongue should be given an opportunity in its own home. The Academy saw a new hope in this. It considered the letter in official session, and cautiously asked to see an act of Iphigenie. After examination of it, Gluck was promised an engagement if he would agree to write six operas like it. This condition, almost impossible of acceptance for a man of Gluck's age, was finally removed through the intercession of Marie-Antoinette, now Dauphiness of France, Gluck's erstwhile pupil in Vienna. Gluck was invited to come to Paris as the guest of the Académie and direct the staging of Iphigenie. He arrived there with his wife and niece in the summer of 1773, lodged in the citadel of the anti buffonists he incurred in advance the opposition of the Italian party. But diplomat that he was, he at once set about to propitiate the enemy. Rousseau, the intellectual potentate of France, was eventually won over. But despite the fact that Gluck's music was essentially human and should have fulfilled the demands of the encyclopedists, such men as Marmontel, La Harpe, and D'Alembert were arrayed against him, together with the entire Italian party and many of the followers of the old French school, who refused to accept him as the successor of Lully and Rameau. Madame du Barry was one of these. Marie-Antoinette, on the other hand, constituted herself Gluck's protector. It was the Guerre des Bouffons at its climax. The première of Iphégénie en April 1774, was awaited with the greatest impatience. Bloch had spared no pains in the preparation. He drilled the singers, spoiled by public favour, with the greatest vigour, and ruthlessly combated their caprices. The obstacles were many. Le Gras was ill. L'arrivée, the Agamemnon, did not understand his part. Sophie Arnold, known as the greatest singing actress of her day, sang out of tune. Vestris, the greatest dancer of his time... He was called the god of dance, was not satisfied with his part in the ballet of the opera. Then dance in heaven if you're the god of the dance, cried Gluck, but not in my opera. And when the Terpsichorean divinity insisted on concluding Iphigenie with a Chaconne, he scornfully asked, Did the Greeks dance Chaconne? Gluck threatened more than once to withdraw his opera, yielding only to the persuasions of the Dauphiness. The second performance of the opera determined its triumph, a triumph which in a manner made Paris the centre of music in Europe. Marie-Antoinette even wrote to her sister Marie-Christine to express her pleasure. Gluck received an honorarium of twenty thousand francs and was promised a life pension, less severe and solemn than Alceste. Iphigenie en Olide and Iphigenie en Tauride, written ten years later to a libretto by Guillard and not heard until May 18, 1779, were the favorites of town and court up to the very end of the Ancien Régime. Not only are both more appealing and less sombre, but they are also more delicate in form, more simple in sentiment, and more intimate than Alceste. Gluck's fame was now universal. Voltaire the oracle of France had pronounced in his favour. The nobility sought his society. The courtiers waited on him. Even princes hastened when he laid down his baton to hand him the peruke and surcoat cast aside while conducting. A strong, well-built man, bullet-headed, with a red, pock-marked face and small grey but brilliant eyes, richly and fashionably dressed, independent in his manner, jealous of his liberty, opinionated, yet witty and amiable, this revolutionary à la Rousseau, this plebeian genius, completely conquered all affections of Parisian society. He was at home everywhere. Every salon lionized him. He was a familiar figure at the levee of Madame Antoinette. In August 1774, a French version of Orfeo, extensively revised, was heard and acclaimed. This confirmed the victory. The anti gluckists were vanquished for the time. But a permanent connection with the Paris opera did not at once result for Gluck, and the next year he returned to Vienna, taking with him two old opera texts by Quinot, Loli's librettist, Roland and Armide, which the Académie had commissioned him to set. He set to music only the latter of the two poems, for when he learned that Piccini likewise had been asked to set the Roland, and had been invited to Paris by Marie Antoinette, he destroyed his sketches. An older, light operetta, Citer Assiégé, which he recast and foolishly dispatched to Paris, thoroughly displeased the Parisians. The opposition was quick to seize its advantage. It looked about for a leader and found him in Piccini, now at the head of the great Neapolitan school. He was induced to come to Paris by tempting promises but was so ill-served by circumstances that, in spite of the manoeuvres and the intrigues of his partisans, his Roland was not given until 1778. On April 23, 1776, Gluck directed the first performance of his new French version of Alceste. It was hissed. In despair, Gluck rushed from the opera house and exclaimed to Rousseau, «Alceste has fallen! Yes, was the answer, but it has fallen from the skies!» In 1777 came Armid. In this opera, Gluck thought he had written sensuous music. It no longer makes this impression. The passion of Tristan, the oriental voluptuousness of the Scheherazade of Rimsky-Korsakov, and the eroticism of the modern dramatic scores have somewhat cooled the warmth of the love music of Armid. On the other hand, the passion of hatred is delineated in this opera powerfully and vigorously enough for modern appreciation. Armide is beautiful throughout by reason of its sincerity. Piccini's Roland followed Alceste in a few months, January 1778. It was a success, but only a temporary one. After twelve well-attended performances, it ceased to draw. Nevertheless, it fanned the flame of controversy, the fight of Gluckists and Piccinists in continuation of the Guerre des Buffons, of which the principals, by the way, were quite innocent was at its height. Men addressed each other with the challenge, "Et vous bluquist ou piccinist? Piccini was placed at the head of an Italian troupe, which was engaged to give performances on alternate nights at the Académie. The two parties were now on equal footing. Finally, it occurred to the director to have the two rivals treat the same subject, and he selected Racine's en Antoride. Piccini was handicapped from the start. His text was bad, Neither his talent nor his experience was so suited to the task as Gluck's. The latter version was ready in May 1779 and was a brilliant success. According to the Mercure de France, no opera had ever made so strong and so universal an impression upon the public. Quote, Pure musical beauty as sweet as that of Orfeo, tragic intensity deeper than that of Alceste, a firm touch, an undaunted courage. A new subtlety of psychological insight, all combined to form a masterpiece such as throughout its entire history the operatic stage has never known. Puccini, who meantime had produced his Atis, brought out his Iphigenie in January 1781. Despite many excellences, it was bound to be anticlimax to Gluck's. Needless to say, it admits of no comparison. Too great stress has been laid on the quarrels of the Gluckists and Piccinists, which, it is true, went to absurd lengths. As is usually the case with partisanship in art, the chief characters themselves were not personal enemies. The Italian sympathizers merely took up the cry which the Buffonists had formerly raised against the opera of Rameau. According to them, Gluck's music was made up of too much noise and not enough song. Quote, but the buffonist agitation had been justified by results. It had produced the opera comique, which had assimilated what it could use of the Italian opera buffa, end quote. Not so this new controversy. Hence, despite a few days of glory for Piccini, his party was not able to reawaken in France a taste for the superficial charm of Italian music. The crowd is for Gluck, side la harpe. And when, after the glorious success of Iphigenie en Tauride, Piccini's Didon was given in 1783, it owed the favor with which it was received largely to the fact that in style and expression it followed Gluck's model. In 1780, six months after the Iphigenie première, Gluck retired to Vienna to end his days in dignified and wealthy leisure. He had accomplished his task, fulfilled the wish of his heart, in his comfortable retreat, he learned of the failure of Piccini's en tauride while his own was given for the 151st time on April 2, 1782. He also enjoyed the satisfaction of knowing that Les Danaides, the opera written by his disciple and pupil, Antonio Salieri, justified the truth of his theories by its success on the Paris stage in 1784. It was this pupil who, consulting Gluck on the question of whether to write the role of Christ in the tenor in his cantata The Last Judgment, received the answer half in jest, half in earnest, I'll be able before long to let you know from the beyond how the Saviour speaks. A few days after, on November 15, 1787, the Master breathed his last, having suffered an apoplectic stroke. The inscription on his tomb Here rests a righteous German man, an ardent Christian, a faithful husband, Christoph Ritter Gluck, the great master of the sublime art of tone, emphasizes the strongly moral side of his character, for all his shrewdness and solicitude for his own material welfare. His music is ample proof of his nobility of soul. Its loftiness, purity, unaffected simplicity, reflect the virtues for which men are universally respected in its essence gluck's music may be considered the expression of the classic ideal the naturalism and new humanism of rousseau which idealized the old greek world and aimed to inculcate the greek spirit courage and keenness in quest of truth and devotion to the beautiful The leading characteristics of his style have been aptly defined as the realistic notation of the pathetic accent and passing movement, and the subordination of the purely musical element to dramatic expression. I shall try, he wrote in the preface to Elsest, to reduce music to its own function, that of seconding poetry by intensifying the expression of sentiments and the interests of situations without interrupting the action by needless ornament. I have accordingly taken great care not to interrupt the singer in the heat of the dialogue and make him wait for a tedious ritonel, nor do I allow him to stop on a sonorous vowel in the middle of a phrase in order to show the agility of a beautiful voice in a long cadenza. I also believed it my duty to try to secure to the best of my power, a fine simplicity. Therefore I have avoided a display of difficulties which destroy clarity. I have never laid stress on aught that was new, where it was not conditioned in a natural manner by situation and expression, and there is no rule which I have not been willing to sacrifice, with good grace for the sake of the effect. These are my principles. Quote. The inscription, Il préféra les muses aux sirenes, he chose the muses rather than the sirens, beneath an old French copper plate of Gluck dating from 1781, sounds the keynote of his artistic character a prophet of the true and beautiful in music he disdained to listen for long to the tempting voices which counseled him to prefer the easy rewards of popular success to the struggles and uncertainties involved in the pursuit of a high ideal and when the hour came he was ready to reject the appeal of external charm and mere virtuosity and to lead dramatic musical art back to its natural sources 7. Gluck's immediate influence was not nearly as widespread as his reforms were momentous. It is true that his music, reverting to simpler structures and depending on subtler interpretation for its effects, put an end to the absolute rule of Prima uomini and Prima Donna, but while some of its elements found their way into the work of his more conventional contemporaries, his example seems not to have been wholly followed by any of them. His dramatic teachings, too, while they could not fail to be absorbed by the composers, were not adopted without reserve by anyone except his immediate pupil, Salieri, who promptly reverted to the Italian style after his first successes. Gluck was not a true propagandist and never gathered about him disciples who would spread his teachings. In short, he did not found a school. Even in France, where his principles had the weight of official sanction, apostasy was rife, and Rossini and Meyerbeer were probably more appreciated than their more austere predecessor. His influence was far-reaching rather than immediate. It remained for Wagner to take up the thread of reasoning where Gluck left off, and with multiplied resources musically and mechanically, with the way prepared by literary forces, and himself equipped with rare controversial powers, demonstrate the truths which his predecessor could only assert. Antonio Salieri, 1750-1825, to 1825, with Le Danaides in 1781, achieved a notable success in frank imitation of Gluck's manner. Indeed, the work originally entrusted to Gluck by the Académie de Musique was, with doubtful strategy, brought out as that master's work, and in consequence brought Salieri fame and fortune. Other facts in Salieri's life seem to bear out similar imperfections of character, he was, however, a musician of high artistic principles. When in 1787 Tarare was produced in Paris, it met with an overwhelming success. But Salieri nevertheless withdrew it after a time and partially rewrote it for its Vienna production under the title of AXUR, Ré Dormus. There may have been many instances in which an artist has been taught by failure that second thoughts are best. There are not many in which he has learned the lesson from popular approbation. End quote. "Salieri's career is synchronous with Mozart's whom he outlived and against whom he intrigued in ungenerous manner at the Viennese court where he became kapellmeister in 1788 he profited by his rival's example moreover" quote, "falls between the methods of his two great contemporaries it is less dramatic than gluck's and it has less melodic genuineness than mozart's" End quote. Prominent among those who adhered to Italian operatic tradition was Giuseppe Sarti, 1729-1802, to 1802, a composer of real invention and a brilliant and audacious master of the orchestra. We have W. H. Hato's authority for the assertion that he first used devices which are usually credited to Berlioz and Wagner, such as the use of muted trumpets and clarinets and certain experiments in the combination of instrumental colours. Sarti achieved truly international renown from seventeen fifty five to seventeen seventy five he was at the court of copenhagen where he produced twenty italian operas and four danish singspiele next he was director of the girls conservatory in venice and till seventeen eighty four musical director of milan cathedral and from seventeen eighty four till seventeen eighty seven he served catherine second of russia as court conductor His famous opera, Armida e Rinaldo, he produced while in this post, 1785, as well as a number of other works. In 1793 he founded a musical academy, which was the forerunner of the great St. Petersburg Conservatory, and he was its director till 1801. His introduction of the St. Petersburg pitch, 436 vibrations for A, is but one detail of his many-sided influence. Not the least point of Sarti's historical importance is the fact that he was the teacher of Cherubini. Luigi Cherubini occupies a peculiar position in the history of music. Born in Florence in 1760 and confining his activities to Italy for the first 28 years of his career, he later extended his influence into Germany, where Beethoven became an enthusiastic admirer, and to Paris, where he became a most important factor of musical life, especially in that most peculiarly French development, the opera comique. His operatic method represents a compromise between those of his teacher, Sarti and of Gluck, who thus indirectly exerts his influence upon comic opera. Successful as his many Italian operas produced prior to 1786 were, they hardly deserve notice here. His Paris activities, synchronous with those of Meul. Are so closely bound up with the history of opera comique that we may well consider them in that connection. The opera comique, the singspiel of France, was comic opera with spoken dialogue. Its earlier exponents, Monsigny, Philidor, and Gossack, were in various ways influenced by Gluck in their work. Gretry, whose Le tableau parlant, Les deux Avars, and La man jaloux are models of lightness and brilliancy, like Gluck speaks the language of the heart in his masterpieces, Zemir et Azor, and Richard Coeur de Lyon, and excels in delineation of character and the expression of typically French sentiment. Gréterie's appearance marked an epoch in the history of opéra comique. His mémoire expose a dramatic creed closely related to that of Gluck, but going beyond that master in its advocacy of declamation in the place of song. Gossack, also important as symphonist and composer of serious operas, Philemon et Bocchis, etc., entered the comic opera field in 1761, the year in which the opéra comique known as the Salle Favard was opened, though his real success did not come till 1766 with Les Péchards. Carried away by revolutionary fervor, he took up the composition of patriotic hymns, became officially connected with the worship of reason, and eventually left the comic-opera field to Cherubini and Méhul. Both arrived in Paris in 1778, which marks the second period of Opéra Comique. The peaceful artistic rivalry and development of this period stand in peculiar contrast to the great political holocaust which coincides with it, the French Revolution. That upheaval was accompanied by an almost frantic search for pleasure on the part of the public, and an astounding increase in the number of theatres. Seventeen were opened in 1791, the year of Louis XVI's flight, and eighteen more, up to eighteen hundred. Cherubini's wife herself relates how the theatres were crowded at night after the guillotine had done its bloody work by day. Music flourished as never before, and especially French music, for the storm of patriotism which swept the country, made for the patronage of things French in the very year of robespierre's execution 1794 the conservatoire de musique was projected an institution which has ever since remained the bulwark of french musical culture in 1789 a certain leonard Friseur to marie Antoinette was given leave to collect a company for the performance of italian opera and opened his theatre in a hall of the tuileries palace with his countryman terubini as his musical director the fall of the Bastille in 1794 drove them from the royal residence to a mere booth in the Foire Saint-Germain, where in 1792 they created the famous Théâtre Fido and delighted revolutionary audiences with Cherubini versions of Chimarosa and Paisiello operas. Here, too, L'Odoisca, one of Cherubini's most brilliant works, was enthusiastically applauded. Meantime, Étienne Méhul, born Givet Ardennes, 1763, died in Paris, 1817. The modest, retiring artist who had been patiently awaiting the recognition of the Academy, his Alonso et Cora, was not produced until 1791, had become the hero of the older enterprise at the Favar, and there produced his Euphrosine et Corrodin in 1790, followed by a series of works, of which the last, Le Jeune Henri, 1797 was hissed off the stage because, in the fifth year of the revolution, it introduced a king as character, the once adored Henry IV. This was followed by a more successful series, quote, whose musical force and the enchanting melodies with which they are begemmed have kept them alive. End quote. His more serious works, notably *Stratonice*, *Atoll*, and especially *Joseph*, a biblical opera. Are highly esteemed. Monsieur Tiezzo considers the last named work superior to that by Handel of the same name. Méhul was Gluck's greatest disciple. He was directly encouraged and aided by Gluck, and even surpassed his master in musical science. Cherubini's Médée and Les Deux Journées were produced in 1797 and 1800 respectively. The latter shows a conciseness of expression and a warmth of feeling, unusual to Cherubini, says Mr. Hadot. At any rate, it is better known today than any of the other works, and not infrequently produced both in France and Germany. It is opéra comique only in form, for it mixes spoken dialogue with music. Its plot is serious. In this respect, it furnishes a precedent for many other so-called opéra comique. Cherubini's musical resources were almost unlimited wealth of ideas is even a fault with him, having the effect of tiring the listener, but his overtures are truly classic, his themes refined, and his orchestration faultless. In Les Deux Journées, he abandoned the Italian traditions, and confined himself practically to ensembles and choruses. He must, whatever his intrinsic value, be reckoned among the most important factors in the reformation of the opera in the direction of music-drama. Cherubini was not so fortunate as to win the favor of Napoleon, as did his colleagues, Gossack and Calitri and Mehul, all of whom received the cross of the Legion of Honor. He returned to Vienna in 1805 and there produced Faniska, the last and greatest of his operas. But his prospects were spoiled by the capture of Vienna and the entry of Napoleon, his enemy, at the head of the French army. He returned to France disappointed, but still active wrote church music, taught composition at the conservatory, and was its director from 1821 till his death in 1842. The opera comique continued, meantime, under the direction of Paisiello, and from 1803 under Jean-Francois Le Sueur, 1760-1837, the only other serious composer who deserves to be mentioned by the side of Meul and Cherubini, end quote. Le innovating ideas aroused much opposition but he had a distinguished following among his pupils was Hector Bellios by FHM end of section 3 read by Sandra near Montreal 2022